Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Hey folks, welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast, the place to be for six, seven, and even eight-figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, uh, part of the amazing FBA family of podcasts. Today, we're in the middle of an interview with Jason Franciosa, who's become a seven-figure Amazon seller from starting from scratch uh, about four years ago. So not overnight, but fairly close to that. And fascinating insights that Jason has around really customer obsession, I would say, is, is not too strong a word for it, which for Amazon themselves are famously well, well known for this and right, rightly so, but the third party sellers, some of us may focus a little bit too much from time to time on the revenue and forget about why we are trying to help people in the first place. So if that's you, you may need a refresher course on what it means to be truly customer centric. And if that's you, Jason Franciosa is your man. Stay tuned, take notes as ever. You can find the notes at 10kcollective.com and enjoy the show. So uh, is the plan then to kind of maintain the relationship between Amazon and Shopify kind of about the same and just to use it for your kind of premium shop sellers? Or do you, could you envisage a time when you might pivot away from that thinking? I have no shares in Shopify, by the way. It sounds like a tangentious <laughs> question, but I'm just interested. No, so I, I would love to continue to expand our website sales. With that said, it's, it's not a... Amazon is a shopping cart, right? Amazon is a checkout for us. It's not... We don't see that as like, I don't see myself as an Amazon seller. We do a lot of sales through Amazon. We're a e-commerce brand that has an Amazon sales channel. We also have a Shopify sales channel. We have distributors. We have, we do a lot of, we do a lot of things across multiple different income streams. Amazon is our largest, no, no question about it. But that's because the consumer right now loves to shop on Amazon. If Amazon went away tomorrow, then we would focus on something different because we're, you know, our customers are there to buy from us and the larger that we grow as a brand, the less they care about where they. But for the customer, it's hard to beat the the one to two day shipping, pretty easy returns, you know. So I understand the benefit of it, and I don't want to take that away from the customers. It gives them a great experience. Yeah, um, nice. So I like your relationship to that. So yeah, I think think of yourself as an e-commerce brand, not an Amazon seller, is something that a lot of people theoretically like. It's like they they talk about working on not in your business, and then they go and spend four hours fiddling with the PPC. <laughs> so you know, it's easy to say, but I, I think that the fact that you actually have a Shopify store and you have that wonderful, successful email strategy is it actually shows that you're actually doing it. Tell me a little about this distributors thing, by the way. That's kind of we kept that quiet, but that sounds pretty significant to me. Is that a big part of your business and or and or is it planning are you planning for it to become more significant if not no so it helps us with markets that we're not in directly so we have a few distributors in south america for different countries there we have a few in the middle east and we're always looking to expand it in those areas in the u.s we've done you know subscription boxes we've done deals with, with local gyms stuff like that we're, i'm less concerned about the u.s because we have a great presence of of being able to support our u.s customers directly I know we speak the language and, you know, I speak Spanish as well, so I could support South America, but we don't have good shipping. We can't take returns. And it's very difficult for us to truly get a great experience in foreign countries where we're not operating directly. So that's where we do distribution deals. So that's been, it's been good. It's not like a huge revenue drive or anything for us, but it just allows us to get 
continue to grow the brand and serve serve athletes in different parts of the world without us having to build out a whole team or you know supply chain networks and everything else in those areas makes sense yeah so it's a kind of way of expanding geographically into areas which really aren't served by amazon either by the sound of it i mean theoretically the middle east you buy but it, that's very expensive and difficult to set up i think so for most people they look at it and go yeah, it's not worth it and south america yeah it's the thing is it's so huge the distance i mean you know better than me having lived there but the the distances are so vast it's just as bad as trying to get stuff across the usa with much much worse infrastructure i'd imagine that i wouldn't i would definitely want somebody else to handle that problem so smart move so talking i guess one of the reasons that i'm asking about your off amazon play is because obviously amazon there's always the feeling that the water is gradually getting hotter and that are we frogs boiling to death or is it just more intense but you can survive it so the the one the one thing <laughs> there'll be multiple challenges in 2021 specifically right but the one thing specific to amazon is well the two things i guess the ipi stuff and the amazon ads going up I'm actually a bit more worried about the Amazon ads thing going up in some ways. Let's talk about that first. Where do you think Amazon's going with this and how do you deal with the gradual increase in Amazon ads if indeed you're seeing that? Yeah, so let's talk Amazon whole for general for a second. Step first thing for for sellers to understand is Amazon's customer base grew faster than almost any other year last year. So the idea that the blue water isn't there anymore, I don't agree with because they expanded so much over the last was it now? It would be like 14 months, 16 months, you know, since, well, I guess it'd be 15 months since COVID hit. So you have a huge, huge buyer pool. And yes, there's a ton of sellers, but the increase in buyers was almost larger than the increase in sellers. So I, I still think Amazon is incredible opportunity for anyone getting into e-commerce. Now, talking about PPC, so Amazon realizes how profitable a lot of the businesses that are selling on Amazon are. And, and I mean, they get 15% for most products. You know, some products are less, some products are more, but the majority of products are 15% right off the top. Doesn't matter what price you sell at or what product you have, they get 15% of your revenue, right? And then on top of that, they have PVC plus fulfillment, plus, you know, they're banking it. But of course, they're a massive public company that's, you know, I don't know the market cap today, but I'm pretty sure it's over a trillion dollars. So how do you grow at that point? And the way that they're doing it is profit extraction from businesses through PPC. So it's a little bit scary because we're seeing more and more of that, that first initial interaction with the customer being those PPC placements. And, you know, they have their, their outreach saying, hey, this is beneficial to you because now, you know, your new products can get right on top of, you know, page one, listing one, just got to pay $30 a click. No problem. The challenge with that is, your profitability starts getting hit. So you have to get really good at PPC or, you know, utilize some agency that's really good at it or whatever. But you got to be very careful not to waste too much money on PPC. At the same time, you need it to be able to launch your products and grow. So you got to have a budget for advertising. Where I see this starting to have a turning point is when Amazon's bids get so competitive because so many people are doing it and their placement is so all over the place where you organic sales just keep dropping and dropping. Then it starts becoming the question, is it worth paying for Amazon PPC versus paying for non-Amazon PPC where I get an actual sale through my website? Because I can't justify PPC spend on a back-end sale if I don't get customer data. So if I have to now spend 100% of my profit on PPC from my sales, I can't make it up on the back-end because I don't own the customer. With, say, Facebook or Google or Pinterest or Reddit, whatever ads you're running off Amazon, if that sale is on my website and not own that customer data, so my next sale is, is ad free. 
I can send an email and get that sale and I paid nothing, so it's pure profit. So Amazon's gonna push as hard as they can. They're gonna hit a tipping point. Sellers are gonna realize that they can get sales for the same price as they can off Amazon. We're gonna see a shift away from it. And that might take 10 years though. That's not anywhere, you know, anytime soon. You know, Amazon won't go away because you have, yeah, Amazon's a cheat with when it comes to the, the buyer the buyer funnel. You know, you have awareness and then, you know, kind of warming up all the way down to the sale. You know, they're getting, you're, they're seeing your listing ready to buy and then they purchase. So that's why you're able to have extremely high conversion rates, which then allows you to spend more on advertising and still be profitable because you don't need to uh, have multiple interactions with that customer. But we are starting to see it shift more and more where it's getting more and more expensive. And eventually you get that tipping point where, you know, going off Amazon makes sense. So it's an interesting time. And it's an interesting period right now with with that. But the opportunity is still huge. I don't think it's, I don't think it's any worse than it was you know, a few years ago. It's getting more expensive, but the buyer pool is huge. And our conversion rate has just been going up and up and up. Interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, it's it's one of those think questions that people to ask is, is Amazon saturated? And like, I guess it's relative. I mean, what happened in 2013-14 when a ton of people came in new and, and started creating the famous courses that I'm not going to give free advertising to. I was one of their, their uh, shall we say, students is the polite word. They gave some rather exaggerated expectations in the end of 2014-15 because they'd experienced this incredible addition of customers in 2013, I think, relative to the pool of competitors or sellers competitors for us and sources for their customers and and it's interesting that there's a sort of mini version of that in 2020 i said mini obviously 2020 nothing was small in 2020 but the relationship between the two may have still shifted in favor of the more customers versus competitors thing that's a very interesting reflection and your reflection on you know you're willing to break even to capture the customer data but you can't justify doing that on amazon because you don't get the data is a really very interesting rational kind of reflection point at which the, you can answer the question should we still be advertising on amazon or not I, I really like that's a very rational way of looking at it that i hadn't heard articulated that way that's great now the other next big challenge with amazon is is the ipi challenge right that okay the inventory being measured across the 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 what do you call it, the store as a whole uh, the count as a whole but then also where that might be going in q4 because if we're getting inventory limits and it's not even you know finished q2 yet that's kind of ringing alarm bells for me. What are your thoughts about where is it going and what's your sort of defensive strategy that you guys use or that you would advise others to use? I mean, so again, that's one of the challenges with selling through Amazon's network. You have that and you can always just look at third party fulfillment centers and everything else just to have as a backup if you need it. With that said, Amazon knows this is a major challenge. And don't forget, like when you lose sales, they're losing a lot of money because they get that 15% plus all this PPC spend, right? So they're doing everything they can to expand that. They don't want you not to be able to send stuff to their warehouses. So I do think just with the reopening and all the supply chain bottlenecks and then the massive growth they had in 2020, plus with Prime Day, you know, just a few days ago, a lot of those restrictions got really tight because so many sellers are trying to send as much as possible prepping for Prime Day and now having to restock. So I'm estimating that they are working very hard to get those numbers back up because they know Q4 is coming and they don't want a bunch of sellers out of stock that hurts them as well, right? So the cool thing with Amazon and selling Amazon is you're partnering with Amazon because it's mutually beneficial for you to do well and for Amazon to do well. Um, so I'm not super concerned about it. We have the luxury of being able to having short lead times. I mean, we can go from order requests delivered to Amazon within 30 to 40 days. So that helps a lot. And we did do a bunch of large shipments as soon as it opened up. So if you see an opportunity where Amazon lets you send stuff in, and you know that's been issues in the past, you know, create those shipping labels, create that that thing and lock in what you have. 
you know, I think at one point we had like 27,000 units and then Amazon brought our, our, our max storage allowance down to like 16,000. But since we already had the stuff either on the way or, or, or at our warehouses with FBA, they can't take it away. So if you get to see the opportunity, it opens up, send the inventory and invest inventory. You know, as long as you know you can sell the inventory, you can never go wrong with that in itself. Yeah, but there's, there's a big if, but you know, you guys have got that proven, so that makes sense. So you, you mentioned you got short lead times. Now, that wasn't what, given the nature of the product you're selling, what I was expecting to hear. So obviously, that's a massive competitive advantage. I think that's just monster because everyone obsesses about unit economics, and so you should. But people don't look at working capital requirements per product line, anything like, I believe, as deeply as you should. Because if you're ordering stuff from China, the average time it's going to be, your capital's tied up in stock is going to be, what, four and a half months if it takes three months from order to selling, and then it takes three months to sell through. So your numbers are obviously very, very different there. How did you manage to source a sort of hard good in America rather than just supplements or something? And what are your thoughts on that front? Because that sounds to me like a really major advantage. Yeah, so we manufacture in the Middle East, and we're very fortunate because I was in the military and a good friend of mine who I served with is one of my business partners, actually. Uh, he's a minority owner of business. Um, a good friend of his moved out to the Middle East and needed, needed a job, essentially. So he opened a, I guess it'd be sourcing agent, but he directly works with all of our manufacturers in the Middle East. And that's just been so critical and crucial to us for product differentiation and development and having someone who, I mean, and he's a CrossFitter, of course, as well. Uh, so he understands how it's being used and I don't have to ship everything to me and back to him for minor changes. I can just have him review it you know, there in theater and, you know, quickly innovate in, 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 and make modifications. And also for manufacturing shipping, like, hey, you know, if we are running low on stock on something, I need it quick. We can ship it by air. Yeah, it's more expensive, but I'd rather pay a bit more on my cost and not run out of stock versus having to you know ship by sea and save you know one two three dollars a year but then stock out and lose complete revenue so that's been a huge i guess competitive advantage for us just having that network and, and having a former military u.s military person in theater running our our supply i was gonna say in theater sounds like uh, you, you still sort of thinking military terms of theaters of war and sort of the battleground <laughs> so but yeah i mean it's it's interesting that what you've you've turned what what you know, obviously on paper, in theory, should be an advantage having sort of disciplined friends. But it's interesting how you've leveraged your network of people that were really kind of prior to e-commerce by the sound of it. It's, it's sort of partly coincidence, but partly, I think, really digging into who you are and who you know in a really deep way. So that's also seems to me to be part of the, you know, your success story. Now, the other obvious thing that, that I don't know if it's any worse in 2021 than it ever is, but it's always a thing, is copycats, right? So how do you protect yourself? You already mentioned you guys are the innovators and you have copycats, but they're not as good. So how do you stay ahead of them in all senses? How do you protect your IP and, and how do you sort of, you know, innovate to stay ahead of them so that you, you're never just being shopped on price? Focus on the person. They can copy all the products they want, but they don't have our brand. They can't take our brand name. They can't take our customers. So when you truly build a relationship, you truly build a brand. It's not just a, a cool, fun, you know, marketing term or, hey, we build a brand. No, when you truly have, and what is a brand? A brand is a relationship with customers. That's all it is. Your brand's entire purpose is to serve that customer. When you have a true customer base that truly wants your products, they're not going on Amazon to buy the cheap stuff from, from your competitors who just undercut you and underprice you. There'll be a section of 
the marketplace that wants that cheap product and it's just a ripoff of what you have to sell. And that's perfect. I don't want those customers. Those are the most difficult customers to deal with. They want everything to be as cheap as possible. They want discounts, they want coupons, they want, you know, they, they're gonna always have issues and complaints. They're gonna be your, your the 20% of your business that just takes up 80% of your time because they're always gonna have problems. They're probably not the person that's gonna read through and understand what this is for and who it's for and why they want this and you know how it's gonna benefit them. And, and even just simple stuff like sizing. Like that 20% is probably gonna increase your, your return rate significantly because you know they're just gonna buy quick because it's cheap. Oh, it doesn't fit, no problem. Let's return it and get the right one next time. But if you're at a, a higher level, you're a higher premium customer and you know, and truly have a brand where people want to buy that brand, then that's it. Look at any premium brand or any any major brand. Like there's people who buy Apple products because it's Apple. Yet there's a million options when it comes to buying a computer that are way cheaper than than a MacBook or whatever. But the majority of the customers want a MacBook. And is it going to truly be different to a level that, like a functionality level? No. no. They both give you access to a web browser, right? Yeah, this is um, true. And I'm, I'm an owner of an iMac, which I'm using right now. And I've got a Google Chromebook. And uh, I guess it was, you know, when I bought it and I, I just thought it would be cheap computing and then it wasn't quite up to scratch. So yeah, you're right. There, there is a, yeah, a quality of customer thing that, that you've put your finger on, which because we don't see people very directly on amazon we have to see it a proxy like the sort of uh, negative review rates return rates etc but you're right it, it really has a very profound financial impact I and mean, return rates just just colossally increases the complexity of your business and it makes it harder to project forward revenue and especially profits as well so you're absolutely right that you don't want everyone and again that's kind of amazon brainwashing isn't that we have to remember that as you say you're a brand who may sell primarily on amazon but that's just a sales channel and we don't have to play the you know uh, cheaper, more selection game that Amazon wants us to play if we don't choose to. That's, that's a really great reminder. Yeah. So, so the of... other piece to it, so there's two parts to it. That's that piece. Yes. The other piece is innovation. So innovation doesn't stop when you launch a product. All of our products have probably, at this point, especially when we've been selling for more than a year, have probably been through 15, 20, 30 changes. So by the time a competitor makes a copy of our product, we've already improved it by the time he gets to market. So yeah, he might copy our our waiting belt uh, from October of 2020, but by February of 2021, we've already made changes. And we made changes in February, and we've already made changes that are being manufactured right now and will launch in a couple in a couple months that our competitors don't know about because we just constantly improving based on feedback and little things that come up. And, and then if we ever have a competitor that's a true threat because they copy one of our previous examples, all we got to do is advertise the new change. Hey, we innovated, we made this change, and it's now better than that. You know, So innovation is so critical. Yeah, and innovation doesn't stop when you launch the product. Innovation is continuous, and there's really? nothing wrong with constantly improving a product, especially if it's on Amazon. Like you have to. This makes a lot of sense, and I guess talking about Apple, I mean, they come up with the iPhone one, the iPhone two, the iPhone whatever, fifty trillion. At some point, you could go a bit too far with that, I, I, but you know, people are still buying them. I've got my fourth or fifth iPhone in front of me here, so <laughs> I guess you know, I, I kind of took a downgrade because it didn't seem like the iPhone ten was much of an upgrade on the six. But to your well, point, you don't yeah, to release a new product to improve a product. Okay. Tesla is famous for this. So Tesla has cars. They don't do the 2017 Tesla, 2018 Tesla, 2019 Tesla. Like literally you could buy a Tesla in March and then by May, there's minor changes that improve the Tesla, you know, and that's what's made them so incredible and their vehicles continuously improving. So you don't have to say like, here's the 2020, this is 2020 edition, this is 22 edition. You can just do those quote, quote, silent revisions 
because you're just improving the product for the customer. You know, and your review average is going to increase over time because it becomes a better and better product. You know, and yes, yeah, some customers might reach out and be like, hey, you know, we have one customer in actually in four years, we only had this happen one time where a, a guy's buddy got our belt because the guy himself loved it. His buddy showed up and he couldn't even complain to us because his buddy was a better product than ours. And he thought it was because we cheaped out on hits. I'm like, no, we're just constantly improving and changing. You know, so we explained that to him and sent him a, a replacement because he was upset about it. And now he's even more loyal to the brand than he was before because he's like, oh, wow, these guys are truly care about the products and truly care about the, the, the actual result, not just not just selling me some crap. Yeah. And by the way, I really love the fact that you're really serious about this business. You're really um, focused on the product and the user experience, not on what are the latest Amazon hacks, which always depresses me when people ask that. I'm like, that's a really red flag question for me. If I were thinking of investing your business, I suddenly wouldn't be because I'm like, your focus is in the wrong place, dude. And as to your point of black hat, like if you ever want to sell a business and you've done something dodgy, then if the due diligence process is thorough, then you just stop yourself selling your business. I mean, yeah, I, I take your point there. But so just, I just got to ask a little bit more about this because I think it's so critical. How do you actually go about this? We would have to go to chapter and verse or reveal anything secret, but the basics of how do you actually get that continuous innovation built into the actual process? So you having really kind of quite short production runs for starters, because that's obviously harder to do if you have six months of, of inventory at any given point, you're only going to be able to innovate, you know, twice in the year, I guess. I mean, what, what, what's your process with that? So again, it comes down to showing up in person and knowing your customer, knowing your person. Because when you actually care about the person, you care about the journey that they're on in the, in the experience that they're having, then you care about what their feedback is. So you get an email if someone has a problem and this came up or you're starting to see you know, customer service issues here or there. Well, you go to an event and you watch it being used like for us on the big stage or in competitions, and you notice things that like that could be better, you just make the changes. The supply chain side doesn't matter. If it takes you six months, who cares? Okay, sell through that six months, and then you launch in six months, who cares? If it takes you two months, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you can innovate a little bit faster, but that's not what's critical. What's critical is you're truly making important, impactful changes that truly increase the experience for the customer because you know who your person is, and because you understand that this change is going to be beneficial to them on their journey. And that's how you win. The, the logistics and the how do I do this? And you call the manufacturers and say, hey, I want to make these minor changes. Yeah. And yes, yeah, some products need, like if you have a plastic product or something that needs a mold, yes, the investment is much greater and stuff like that. So you may want to wait a little bit to make sure that this is the final change you want to make. But who cares? If it takes you a year, who cares? Yeah. Right? So there's just way too much obsession with the, Okay, well, you know, how do I make a phone call to my manufacturer to make this change? And you'll figure that out. Google, Google's there. Yeah. But no, what change do you make? Yeah. Right? Yeah, the what, not the how is a very good point. I mean, I think you're right. We, we obsess a bit too much about the how, on, and I guess I'm probably guilty of that, like any sort of podcast interview as well. But <laughs> this is a very good point. I mean, yeah, focus on what your customers need and just get it going as quick as you can. It's more or less what I'm taking from that. So this is really, really smart. Now, one thing you mentioned before we went on air is that, that I was saying, you know, what what are you kind of passionate about at the moment? What, what's really making a difference to your business? And you just mentioned that the simple fact of things opening up again, and I guess particularly in the USA, Europe's varying a bit. London, <laughs> where I am now, England in, in sort of late June is kind of opened up, but not entirely. I guess the States varies a bit across the States. But what's your response? What, where does that take things? Yeah, so I mean, here everything's open back up. So you know, for us, it's it's a very community-based event, sport. 
you know, every, literally every single box is almost like a family. And then you have these big competitions where everybody getting together to compete. And, you know, some of these are like 40, 50, 60,000 person events and stuff like that. So we're just getting back out there. We're showing up in person, meeting people in person. Like one of the big questions too is like, how do you get an influencer? Like everybody asks that question. Go meet them. Like go shake their hand, have a conversation with them, build a true relationship. And I guarantee you an easy yes if you actually show up in person, learn about them, explain your story, tell your story, tell the brand story, you know, show them the passion you have about truly caring about the customer. And that's it. It's easy. And then one other thing I want to bring up before we end this podcast is you know, everyone gets obsessed about the sale of the business. You know, I want to sell for a million dollars, I want to sell for five million, I want to have a hundred million dollar exit, whatever it is. Remember two things. One, Nobody wants to buy your crap brand that you want to sell. If an investor is buying your brand or you're buying your business, you better be like excited about it too. And, you know, so if it's something you built just to sell, it'd be very hard to find an investor that's going to give you a high valuation on it. Like the majority of sales or business sales that I've seen do very well and get higher multiples than average. I mean, most Amazon businesses under a million, it's like three X. And then you get to like the one to 10 million and maybe three to five X, depending on the model and stuff like that. But the ones that sell for like five, 10, 15 X are the brands that the owners don't want to sell. Right? So build a brand that you truly enjoy and truly love. And then two things happen. One, you're not obsessed about selling it. Or sorry, one, your, your buyer is going to be much more excited to buy it because you built a true brand that people actually care about. And it's going to, have some long-term profitability and be able to grow much faster and quicker and be competitive in the marketplace. And then two, you might not want to sell it and that's okay. Like I thought we were going to hit a million dollars and I'm like, sweet, I'm going to be a millionaire or two million because I have business partners and I'm going to be a millionaire. Well, we passed two million. I'm like, well, I sell this business. What do I do? Like, why would I sell? So now I'm like, oh, well maybe when we hit 10 million, then I'll be wanting to sell, you know, because that would be enough to where I can retire in the whole nine yards. But at the same time, it's like, I wake up every day and I love what I do and this thing's growing like crazy and I'm not able to put this money anywhere else in the world to have the same return on investment I have here. So why would I even sell it? So I think the goal for starting an e-commerce brand is to build a brand that you don't want to sell. If you can do that, then you'll get a much higher valuation. You'll get a much better return on your investment. You also enjoy the journey much more, which is the whole point of this whole thing. Like if you hate your life for 10 years, but then you get a nice big sale, well, you lost 10 years of your life just for, for a dollar amount. So to me, that's kind of the end state and the goal is build a brand that you truly are passionate about, truly love. And it's time to sell when you no longer get excited out of it. Um, you know, and I think that's when you can do, you can consider selling or if you just get a huge offer and it makes sense for the growth of the brand and for the customer, because say you're getting bought out by a company that's gonna help expand the outreach of the brand or you're getting bought out by maybe someone who has a much larger customer base that they can plug you into and all of a sudden grow. That's how you get this high multiples, you know, the 10, 15, 20X EBITDA. And it's also how you actually have much more impact on the world, which is kind of the whole point of this. Yeah, I, I, that's, a, by the way, is not the kind of the whole point for everybody, but it, it definitely is for you. And having an impact, it, it's very interesting that even unconsciously, I think you're, the way you articulate this stuff, you, you're just not going to be shifted from having a mission. Maybe it comes from that military background where you, you don't, I guess, go into the military just to collect a paycheck because people might shoot at you. I guess you've got to have <laughs> a bit of a more major driver than that. And, and maybe that's what the kind of mission based thinking seems, seems to be built into you. And that's uh, it's very impressive. And it's a great counter to to all the kind of very numbers based 
things and talking of shining object syndrome we haven't even addressed why you shouldn't go into that but i guess one of the reasons people do that is because it's very numbers driven and people sort of dangling this thing you know i think freud said you know he, he died quite close to where i live with and sigmund freud the great psychologist he didn't say people need sex and money he said people need love and work and i always reflect on that comment because I just think an awful lot of what's on alpha there and then pornography is is kind of obviously selling sex and that drives a lot of the internet and and doesn't lead to happiness i would argue and uh, the other thing that's similar is people selling money in a sort of semi-pornographic way with all the adverts out there and again i would argue it doesn't lead to happiness what you've got is work you're obviously working hard but you're clearly passionate about it so it's, it's a great example to me of of what it can look like and, and i hope that the listeners really uh, you know get that passion as well being a real honor and a privilege jason I, I i love this stuff this is this is great even better insights than i was hoping what questions should i have asked you that i haven't asked you is my final i think there were better questions no i think i think this was great no again i think if, as long as you're going at this from the mindset of trying to really affect the lives of other people it allows you to make the right decisions which allows you to be successful in business when you're strictly in a fear-based mindset of I need to, I need this, I need to get to a certain amount, I need the sale, I need this new product, I need this tactic, I need this, it's very, very difficult to become successful because it's all about you and then your customers don't care. Like, your customers care about them. So once you make that mentality shift of this whole brand building process is about them and not about you, everything just gets so much easier and then it becomes more rewarding and you know, growth is easy and products are easy and I mean, you're going to have challenges and stuff, of course, but, you know, it just goes away so much faster because you just show up and you see, you know, you see it all happening. Amazing. I can't, I can't even begin to top that. So it just remains for me to say, Jason Francioza, thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing your insights. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.